It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but MIDI Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Greetings and welcome to episode 99 of By the Balls. Uh, John Davidson here with you and for this episode we've got a, a very special guest from the world of football. Uh, it is Newcastle Jets head coach and former Wolverhampton, Shrewsbury Town, Portsmouth, Sheffield Wednesday, Walsall, Rotherham United, Sheffield United, Sunderland, Norwich City, Toronto FC, New York Red Bulls, and Wales international midfielder, Carl Robinson. Well, yeah, how did you how did you find the the end of the season, the end of the A League season, Carl? Well, it was uh, it was different. Um, by what I mean by that is after obviously the the COVID break. Yeah. Obviously, I think life in general was a little bit different for a lot of people. So. Um, trying to readjust and get the players to refocus after not playing for maybe 10, 8, 10, 12 weeks uh, wasn't easy. Um, and you tried to just get them to understand that they're doing something they love and they're doing something they get paid to paid to do to enjoy it because you know, with the stuff going on in the world that you can't control, what you can yeah. control is what's in front of you, which is football matches. So uh, that's how I sold it to them. Obviously, we had four games to go after the after the after the break, uh, and we just tried to attack every game. So it was uh, the players deserve a lot of credit because uh, not just my team, um, but I think every team in in the A League because the the ability to adapt and understand and and deliver uh, really good performances and good football um, they deserve a lot of credit for because obviously it's been very difficult over the last few months for them all in general. Yeah, that that it has. I mean, Newcastle. I think had the best record of any team since the season resumed, and and in total for you, I think it's you know one defeat in ten games since you took over. I mean, that's um, that must be pretty pleasing. Yeah, and you know it's, it's pleasing, and, and I keep saying all the time it's it's about players, and you know what what I did was when I come in. Um, you know, I evaluated the squad. I looked at you know ten, twelve previous games, and 
Um, I just rejigged a few things. You know, I didn't come in and blow it up because I didn't I didn't feel I needed to with only 10, 11 games to go of the season. Uh, what I wanted to do is just reinstill a few of of my beliefs that I want, um, how I want to play with them without the ball, and then instill confidence in the players. You know, literally 18 months earlier, they were in the grand final, and obviously they lost their way a little bit, and that happens sometimes. So it was just about getting to know the players and then obviously instilling confidence and then bit by bit drip feed them of what I wanted each individual position, uh, what I required, and then obviously different units, whether it was the back three or the midfield four or the front three. So um, I did it stage by stage, uh, and they took information on board. And, and the thing that pleased me the most over the 11 games or so was that they, they want to learn. The, the Aussie boys want to learn. They're, they're, they're very smart tactically. They understand the game, and they want to be coached. And that was, to me, that was a breath of fresh air because I took a year out because I wanted a break from football after spending 12 years in in, in, in MLS mm. and, you know, loving my time there. Uh, but I always had planned to have a year out to spend some time with my family. So when I come back in, I was very clear with what I wanted and how, and how I wanted it to be done. Um, but the players were brilliant. I said they, they, they want to learn. They want to be coached, and um, sometimes you got to tell them in, in in a nice way, and sometimes you got to tell them in a strong way. So um, <laughs> it was it was a it was a good match. Yeah, well, I mean the the omens there are, are good for next season. I guess the you know the planning for next season starts starts now. I mean, how far do you think you could take the the Jets? Yeah, well, that's, that's a, I think that's a big question for all my, all managers. And there's a lot of new managers within the A League. I know there's a lot of yeah. assistants have stepped up now with you know Adelaide and possibly Melbourne again. So um, you know, <laughs> have their aspirations and things like that. What what I want and I said to the guys is you now I want to establish a the first I had in my had in mind what I wanted and to show teach them and make them understand what I wanted and for them to do that in 10 games um, is phenomenal because and that's why I say to you about tactically you know it's not just one thing in football you know the tactical the technical the physical areas you need to tap into as much as I said to you the tactical one was me teaching them me coaching them me showing the, the technical one was about them and how they can get the best at their own individual position, you know, with belief. The mental side of it was me getting to know the person before I can tap into the player's mind to get the confidence out of them. Uh, and obviously the physical was what that was. I challenged them to do was, you know, give them 5%. You know, and that's all I asked for. You know, I can't come in and say to the players, I want 20% off you more because that would be insulting to them because they actually are trying even though they're losing games. So it was bit by bit, stage by stage, in different areas of what I believe you can tap into a player's mind and a team's mind. So, um, you know, I did a lot of research in that in the off season and spent a lot of time with other sports, coaches, um, and just evaluating and self self reflecting. So, um, people who say that it takes a year or, or takes eighteen months to actually try and build the way of playing and build your belief and and that lot. I've just shown in 11 games, it can take 11 games because if you are clear with what you want and you know how to get the best out of people. Yeah. And there, there has been a bit of a blow with, with Dimi Petrados going, obviously, you know, key figure at the club and, and a key player. Um, yeah. How, how did you see that? 
Yeah, well, I was aware of that uh, when we come back, to be honest. And, yeah. you know, I'm pleased for Dimmy. Uh, and what I say with that is with, with every, you know, I'm pretty honest with my players from day one. I'm open with them. My, my door is always open. If they've got a problem, come and see me. If I can help them, whether it's on the field or off the field, come and see me. Um, and my job is to make them better. And if I make them better individually, they collectively become better. But on the individual side, you know, every player has, you know, it makes them tick. And each player will be different of what that might be. It might be that they want to be the big fish. In Newcastle, it might want to be the financial side of it. It might want to be the fame side of it. And, you know, Dimi has obviously been in the A-League for a number of years. He flirted going abroad and it didn't quite work out. Uh, and then an amazing financial package come for Dimi uh, towards the end of the season. And it was based upon the first six games he played for me. You know, he was exceptional for me when, when I first come in, having a number of assists. And I think he's finished the top assist you know, player in the A-League. Mm. Um, so it was no surprise uh, that someone come in for him. And there's been other phone calls, you know, not serious interest, but actual general conversations about a number of my players. And uh, I've said to them all the time, if, if I've got interest in my players, I'm happy because it means they're doing well. <laughs> Obviously, when that happens, there's, there's circumstances which you lose players. And Dimmy was one, Dimmy's one of them that unfortunately, for me, I'm going to lose a really, really good player. Um, and a key component of the team but for Dimi I'm delighted for him because he gets an opportunity to to go and play obviously in Saudi Arabia um, it's a very tough league there's some really good football over there I know there's some certain players over there that he already knows so it's going to be a real test to him and, and hopefully him and his family settle but the financial side of it was too much for too big for him um, and he says he goes with my best wishes and because the doors always open if he if he ever wants to come back and play for me yeah well obviously with with him going i think it was you know bobby bobby burns um when in the lockdown period and where's Houlihan as well as yep. yeah there's quite a few players i guess they that you're gonna need to replace how many how many players do you want to bring in for the new season yeah well that's that's the question at the moment that i'm talking with with obviously laurie and, and we're waiting on the uh, the ffa and the clubs and the PFA to try and sort that out and resolve it and yeah. I, I believe the sooner they can resolve it the better because you know obviously you have your visa players and national players you know we've lost Bobby we lost Wes we lost oh, we've got Arroyo who's out of contract we've got Joe Ledley who's out of contract and obviously Dimmy's leaving so they're, they're, they're five really important players mm. um, you know who knows what's going to happen with the with the A-League and the exemptions because it took me a while to get an exemption to get into the country Um so foreigners, it might not be as easy as what people think, getting foreigners yeah. into the country. So we've got to be very careful with that. But what I've said from day one when I come in is, you know, my first port of call would be to see what's in Australia. You know, obviously I've signed Bernie Abini, which is great. And I've managed to sign James Donaghy from Melbourne Victory, which I think is a fantastic signing for us as a football club. I want to, I've also got a really good core young group of players in, in the Thurgates and the Gagoviches and the Matt Millers and the Johnny Catrumbuses that we can work with. Um, so I'm happy with the core group of my players, but I do know that I need probably three ideally five but I'd, I'd be happy with four players new additions where they'll come from i don't know and that's based upon circumstances of of obviously the the, the different countries but mainly as well it's the cap 
because you know we're not one of the biggest spending teams. We know that. Obviously, we're, there's a potential new owner, ownership owners that are going to come in or try to come in or buy the club. Um, so where we sit with that is a little bit grey at the moment. Um, so so I don't know. You know, if you're asking me, can I go and spend money on two marquee players like Sydney or Melbourne? The the reality is no, probably not. Um, so then I've got to go and find out uh, little gems, hidden gems. I think that I believe will will benefit the squad. So um, I'm going to go from top to bottom in Australia. I'll look in different youth teams within the A-League that players have not played or, or fringe players in A-League squads that haven't played and I'll see whether that I believe there's any players that can come in, young players that can come in and help me in the short term but obviously help them in the long term because if we can make a conveyor belt of trying to coach, develop and sell players then I think we get the best opportunity of trying to get younger players in but you know, it, it sounds easy. Uh, it's about giving players opportunities. Uh, that's what I'll do. Uh, obviously, they've I've, they've got to do have the buy-in of me and my staff to coach them, which we know we're very good at, uh, and we and we need to win because teams want to get players from successful teams. So it's just one or two parts of, of four or five bigger whole parts that we need to make sure we get right. So I'm I'm scouring at the moment. I'll use. <laughs> and we we were talking about Demi. I mean. Um... You've got two other Petrados boys there in Costa and uh, and Mackie. It's obviously a very talented football family. Their, their father was a footballer as well. I mean, do you think with, with Costa and Mackie, have they got the sort of potential to to replace Dimi? Are they you know they those sort of players who can who can make that step up? They're obviously both still you know pretty young. Yeah, and 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 they've got a sister who plays for Newcastle. That's well. right. So it's, yeah, yeah. No, there's. Um, it's a very talented football family. You know, they're different players. You know, I said to Costa and Mackie, I actually think it will help them that Dimmy's leaving. And I don't mean that in a bad way. What I mean by that is at some stage you have to become your own man. And I yeah. think that will happen with Costa. You know, he got a, Costa got his opportunities at the end of the season because Costa's attitude and, and work ethic a second to none. They are brilliant. You know, he never complains, never moans. He gets on with it. He trains hard. He's always competing, you know, and he's a very good finisher. And he showed that, you know, he got the match winner against Sydney. He should have scored against Central Coast. He nearly scored or created a goal for his brother against Western. So every game is an impact. Mackie is is a little bit different from Costa. He's a little bit younger, uh, but he's a really talented boy. You know, I've got to tap into his mind to try and make him believe in himself a little bit more because I firmly believe at the moment I believe in him more than he believes in himself. And for any player, you've got a, you know, not, not just Mackie, I've got Jack Simmons, a young midfield player, or, mm. or very high on, very talented player. We've got Noah James, who's a young player as well. Um, and we've got two or three boys in the academy, which I think have got huge potential as well. So, But they've got to believe in themselves. So that'll be the big thing for Mackie. Obviously, Costa will be a big part of the squad next year as well. Uh, and it's down to players, how, how much they play based upon how they train. Yeah. And you, you talked about you know salary caps and, and money and recruitment. I mean, obviously, there's been a, a lot of chatter uh, about the club's ownership. You know, they're looking to, to, to get a new owner in. Is that is that a concern at all for you? Or do you just sort of, you know... That, that's not your <laughs> domain and you focus on football? Yeah, no, it's it's a, it's a good question. It's, it's one I get asked quite a bit, to be yeah. fair. And, and I, I know it's been ongoing for five or six months since actually I've come in back in uh, at the end of February, uh, end of January, start of February. So uh, nothing's changed to this point. I know that Laurie's doing a lot of work behind the scenes. You know, it's... Um, 
you know, it's a fantastic football club and there's an opportunity for someone to come in and, you know, put their mark on it. You know, it's a, it's a great place to live. Um, the town is great, city, town. Um, you know, there's a lot of football people here. Um, so it would be a shame if it, if it doesn't get taken over. Um, you know, uh, for, the, for the city, it needs to. Um, do I worry about it? No. Uh, I can only control what I can control. Yeah. I'm a big, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in control of controllables, and you know, it's out of my hands. You know, if I worry about it, it's going to affect me and what I do when I go to work every day. Um, you know, will it affect me? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know, uh, but I can't control what's going to happen behind the scenes. Um, but I do get regular updates from Laurie, and I know that he's doing a lot of work behind the scenes. So, fingers crossed. Uh, I'm a big believer of good things happen to good people, so hopefully that can work out. Yeah, and the, let's talk about your your background. I mean, you you're born in Wales. I'm I'm not going to probably try and pronounce your place of okay. birth, but it's go on. You should Landra Dodd. Um, yeah, probably yeah, butcher good. that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, where did you um? It's it's where did you grow up? Landrin Dodwells. Yeah, so it's good. <laughs> where did you did you grow up there and i guess how did you do first you know get into football as a as a youngster yeah uh well i was clandering dodwells is a place that is known as a rugby town yeah um and no professional athlete has come out of there since 1958 wow. <laughs> which, which which is incredible and i kept getting told that and uh you know i was i was a i was football daft i was sw- i was a very good swimmer at the time, and at 12, I had to decide whether I wanted to go and swim because I swam for Wales, whether I had to go into swimming or I had to go into football. And right. my mum wanted me to swim and my dad wanted me to play football. So I actually went into football and obviously the swimming had helped my fitness-wise because obviously the, the lung capacity, it, it helps. Uh, but I went into football and at 12, I, my mum and dad were driving me around everywhere, um, three hours a day. Um, three times a week to go and train, you know, and that was a sacrifice they made for me. So um, I got the opportunity then, I think, 13, 14 to join Wolverhampton Wanderers. And I I turned that down and I turned it down because I was a a homeboy, a local lad from Wales where obviously nothing comes out of there. And I was a little bit scared. Um, But I carried on my football development through my father and through an ex-manager of Wales, Mike Smith, um, about an hour away from where I lived. So I committed to him to see whether I could improve that way. Uh, and I did at 16. Wolves come back in for me and I signed a, uh, a schoolboy forms at Wolves at 16. Yeah, I mean, obviously that, that decision to focus on football is, you know, it's clearly paid off. I mean, what was your what was your stroke swimming or were, were, you, were you everything? I was, was an actual butterfly man. Can you wow. believe that? Wow. Yeah. So, and <laughs> That's a hard stroke. People, yeah, I tell when I tell people because obviously we always have the recovery sessions, and when I tell people oh, I used to swim butterfly for whales, they laugh and they say, "No <laughs> chance, you can't do that." And then obviously I get sucked in to show them, and I show them that it's all about technique. That's what it's about, and I managed to obviously I've got that still, even though it's thirty years later. So, <laughs> well, I mean, as you mentioned, your, your dad. I mean, he was obviously a. A big influence on you and you know and on on your football career he was my late father i lost him seven years ago eight years ago now and um still hurts to this day uh what him and my mother went through uh, and you don't realize when you're in it you only realize after what they sacrificed yeah. for you and and based upon that i i, I try to 
I use my knowledge that I've got from obviously the things that I missed out on, the things that I can't do or say now to try and help young players because young players will be given guidance by mums and dads, parents, also being given guidance by agents and things like that. And I, and I try and give the knowledge that I have across to them. And it's not easy. And, you know, people are pretty stubborn at certain times, but you're only as good as what you know. And I've been through it and I know. So I try and give my honest opinion as a friend, not the manager, as a friend to what I suggest. And then it would be down to you as a family decision because, you know, I generally believe what I did in football was what my dad wanted to do. But my dad didn't do that. Uh, He made the sacrifice of staying locally, playing locally and meeting my mother, which I'm grateful for because I'm here. Um, But the driver, the key driver for him was to push, push, push me which is obviously what he didn't do. So every, everything that I've done in my football career was probably what he should have done. Mm-hmm. And that's what's driven me on now. And even into management is, you know, I said to him I wanted to be a manager and, you know, his, one of his last words were, go for it. You know, you're good enough, you can do it. And that's what I did. Yeah, I mean, you you spent a long time at, at Wolves, obviously joined as a trainee, you know, breaking in the first team at, at what, 19, you know, over 160 yeah. games for Wolves and, you know, obviously went on for a long playing career. I mean, what was what was that time like starting off at, at Wolves as a, you know, as a young Welsh kid coming over and, you know, trying to make your name? It would have been pretty ruthless, <laughs> I imagine. Yeah, and, and do you know what? One of the stories, you know, I tell this story to people and, you know, sometimes when I tell them, you know, they look at me as if, you know, it's, it's not true. Uh, but I tell you, I tell him it's God's honest truth it's 100% true on my first day I signed for Wolverhampton at 16 years of age I was told by the chief scout and the coach that I wasn't big enough wasn't strong enough was too soft too quiet and I was probably not going to make it and I was told that on day one and coming from Wales where I was uh, it was it was a very nice place to live and it was quiet and I was I was a very quiet person you know I cried my eyes out for, for two weeks I was homesick for two weeks I wanted to leave I didn't want to be there because I was told I wasn't good enough I was told that yep. I wasn't going to make it and obviously speaking to my father and my mother who left me there in Wolverhampton at the time and I'm saying I'm coming back I'm coming back and they were no no you got to hang on there you got to keep going and keep going and literally two two weeks after I'd managed to get over the initial shock of you know I thought you know what? I'm going to prove people wrong and a year later, at 17, I'd signed a professional contract. There was five of us. And a year later, I was the only one out of the five left. And I generally believe to this day, the reason why that happened, it, was, it wasn't because I was the most talented out of the five players that signed professional. I was probably third or fourth, fourth or third if I was lucky. It was because I was told that I wasn't going to make it and I wasn't good enough. And that drive, determination and trying to prove people wrong was... What you know? Why I stepped into it, and why I got into it, and why I remained into it. So I use that story to people, and I say, listen, when someone tells you that they're going to release you, they're not going to keep you, um, you've done this. Don't worry about it. I said because I was told that many times, and I've mm. proved that from a good player. I wasn't brilliant. I was a good player to go on and play over four hundred plus games and be in the in in professional football for twenty odd years, and now going into management proves you can. So. Don't give up. Don't you know? Give up chasing. Don't give up believing. Um, continue with dreams because I'm living proof of it. And I use that with people. So um, yeah, I enjoyed my time at Wolves. It was brilliant. 
um, you know, I decided to leave. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. After eight years, just because... There was a disagreement with the manager over a contract, which happens. Um, so I signed a pre-contract with Portsmouth after eight years of being at Wolves. Uh, and then Wolves come back to me with a contract after I'd pre-signed with Portsmouth, which is usually the case. Uh, but I'd, I'd committed to Portsmouth and Harry Redknapp. So I signed there. I went on loan a couple of times to Sheffield Wednesday, Sheffield United, Rotherham, because I wanted to play. You know, football's about playing. Football's not just about, for me, not just about picking money up, it's about playing because once your career is over, your life begins. And I wanted to play as many games as I could. Um, and then I had great times at Sunderland and Norwich as well, you know, prior to go, moving over to Major League Soccer at 29. Yeah, at Portsmouth, obviously, yeah, you didn't you didn't play a lot of games for them. I mean, how was it there with under Harry Harry Redknapp, obviously, you know, a, a, big, a big figure? It, it was really, really good. And again... When I went to Portsmouth, it was like I originally I'd failed my medical uh, on a knee issue that I had. I had knee clean up on my knee, um, and I signed a paper play contract. And based upon that, I had the determination in me and the drive that I knew my knee was fine, and it was. And I continued to play the first 15, 16 games, and then Harry signed Tim Sherwood, uh, an England international, yep. a very very talented player who played in my position. He was at Tottenham, so when Tim came in. Tim went into the team and I and I respected that and I understood it. I was disappointed, um, but I stayed for a month or so and I was on the bench and I wasn't playing. And then there was an in, there was a couple of interested championship teams in me to say that they would like to take me on board. So the easy thing would have been to stay and not play, uh, but I wanted actually to learn. And what I what I say is I learned so much from going on loan to different managers for, to different environments. With different tactics, with different beliefs and values, on these in these loan moves, and that's when I the reality hit home. That I want to be a manager because yeah. Yeah. there's so many good things and things you learn during the way. So I learned pretty quickly when I was probably 24, 25 that I wanted to be a manager, which is how I started getting into it and making notes and building books of profiles of season and tactics. Um, but I learned so much from going on loan. So I respected Harry. I had a great, great relationship with Harry. And obviously when I left Portsmouth, I, I ended up at another fantastic football club in, in Sunderland uh, with Mick McCarthy, who was, uh, again, a breath of fresh air as a manager. Yeah, I mean, and you helped, you helped them get promoted. Obviously, a, you know, successful time there at Sunderland. Yeah, it was great. Uh, but the first year was we missed out on the playoff semi-final against Crystal Palace. We lost on penalties, so it was heartbreaking. So again, football kicks you in the teeth sometimes. And when it does, you just got to get back on that horse again and go again. And we did. You know, it doesn't get any worse than losing in the playoffs in the semi-final uh, on penalties. So uh, because you know a couple of the boys missed penalties, so the easy thing to do would have been just to feel sorry for ourselves the next year and. And miss out on promotion again, but we used that as determination, and we actually won the league by eight or nine points against a very talented Wigan team who had uh, Roberto Martinez as the manager. So, you know that was a, that was great times, and we got promoted to the Premier League, and 
you know, there was a lot of positives there, and then and the squad got blo- blown up. You know, the the squad Mick decided to sign fifteen odd of the better players in the championship that he believed, whether it was right or wrong, that was mixed belief. Um, so there were certain players that come in in certain positions, and a number of the championship winning squad left, obviously for for various reasons. And I was one of them. Literally left about six months later to go on loan to Norwich, which Nigel Worthington, the ex Northern Ireland uh, player, was the manager, and he had Dougie Livermore there as the ex Liverpool guy as an assistant, and I knew them from my time in the Championship. Um, so I enjoyed my time there as well. Yeah, and I mean you played, you played for your country. 52 times you know for a decade that yeah you must have been a you know a very proud to you know to to wear that that shirt so many you know so many times well i think as a young boy a uh, young girl you you grow up wanting to be a professional footballer yeah you know that is the in, in wales in england that is the make and in north america it's probably different whether it's canada it's hockey whether it's america it might be nba whatever but in in europe it's you want to dream you dream about being a professional footballer so i achieved achieved that objective my second one was i wanted to play for my country and you know i managed to get a couple of under 18 under 21 caps and a couple of b caps you know, I'd missed out on the youth team age groups because I was from mid Wales, and uh, in Wales they have South, North, and Mid. And South, obviously, Wales with Cardiff, Swansea, and yeah. all the guys up there, and you have North, which is Wrexham and Anglesey and all that. But there's nothing comes out of mid Wales, as I said to you at the start. It's so I was one that probably missed the boat in in youth team camps, but. At 18-19, when I broke into the Wolves' first team, I obviously got picked for the Welsh Under-21 squad. Um, so it, again, it shows you that you can be a late developer in the youth teams. You know, there were players that have played 40 or 50 times from under-14s all the way up to under-21s that never had a senior national team cap, yeah. which is incredible. So <laughs> it, is. it shows you that football is like that. Um, so to achieve one cap for my country was a dream because I'm a very patriotic Welsh boy. To achieve 52 and get a gold cap, because you get a gold cap every time you play 50 times, uh, and it's only been done 30 30 times or 31 times by modern-day players. So it's something which I hold in high esteem, I'm very proud of, um, and I make no secret of it. As I said to you, one day I want to go and manage my country, because I'm a, a very passionate Welsh boy who was told that nothing you can't achieve nothing uh, and i've proved that you can achieve things if you believe uh, and if you do the work and you get a little bit of luck along the way yeah and i and i imagine your your debut in 1999 um was obviously a memorable moment but you you also won man of the match so it can't have been a bad day against ukraine wasn't it it was a nil-nil game <laughs> uh, wasn't it Be- yeah. belarus belarus right yeah it's um i did yeah it was great uh, listen i was i was a player that where I wasn't the most exciting player. And when I say that, I wouldn't get bums off seats because I was dribbling like Ryan Giggs. I was going to say, you weren't Giggs. <laughs> no, but I tell you what I was do. I made, I firmly believe my job was to make players around me better. Yep. And I was a connector. I was that little piece of the jigsaw that sometimes, you know, I know now as a manager, I look for that. You know, I've got one here in, in Newcastle with Stevie. Uh, you know, I had it in Vancouver with Pedro Morales, with Matias Laba, you know, foreign uh, Chilean boy and an Argentinian boy. I, I have connectors, and the connectors don't get all the glory sometimes, but they're one of the most important players in the team. So yeah. uh, that was my role, and I understood my role. I was happy to play with 
with the likes of Giggsy and Bale and Ramsey. Um, you know, originally when I broke into it, it was Mark Hughes, it was Nathan Blake, it was Gary, the late Gary Speed, you know, fantastic players. Mm. And that generation then moved on. And then the younger generation come through of the Ramseys, the Ledleys, the Bales, you know, and these guys. Um, so I was in between because I was in that generation of... There wasn't many of us about because all the youth team players, the talented ones that have come through, hadn't progressed into first-team football, so they'd been in and out, in and out. Whereas I was more consistent, um, probably because I was more team-orientated player rather than individual. So very proud moments. Um, obviously, it makes me proud when I go back to Wales now that you know I can say that a little boy from mid-Wales has got 52 caps and played 450-odd times professional football. And, and even to this day, they still don't believe it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you, you, you also, you know, playing under Hughes and, and John Tushak, I mean, they would have been guys you would have, I imagine, looked up to as, as, a, as a kid, you know, when you're kicking the ball in the, in the backyard. Well, Sparky was, uh, you know, I, I have a photo of me going on trial at Man United at 12 years of age because I played in a little tournament in Aberystwyth, the Ian Rush tournament. Yep. Obviously, Ian Rush is a fantastic yeah, person, a yeah. Ford and Liverpool icon, and I got invited to Man United. So when I went to Man United on trial, I realised, obviously, then how big football was because I was one of 600 players that went up that week in my age group and there were seven weeks of 600 players per week, <laughs> per age group. So I quickly realised that football wasn't going to be easy, um, but I still I've got a photo with Mark Hughes because he was a, a first-team player at the time uh, for Man United and it's pretty ironic how then I come to play under Mark Hughes as the world manager and I still have this photo. So I still have a laugh and a joke with him now when I see him about the photo I have when I was 12 years of age and he was a lot older than me. <laughs> and it, it must be nice looking looking at the Welsh national team now. I mean, they've just, they've come on so much, haven't they? You know, as a as a real force, you know, in, in Euros yeah, they, and etc. They, they have. And what I say to people is, you know, it, the work started with John Toshak. You know, yep. John Toshak was a fantastic, first of all, he's a fantastic human being. And I know some senior players had their, their arguments with him because he was in that middle part of, um, how can I say, restructuring Welsh football. Yep. Right? So there was a, a nucleus of older players that were coming towards the end of their careers. There was some talented young ones coming through, but they weren't quite re ready yet. So there was a, probably a, a, an 18-month to two-year little period where it was going to be rough, whoever the manager was. And I'm glad that John Tosh had come in in that period. He explained to me what his uh, ideas were, how he looked at the game, viewed the game, what he wanted, what his plans were. Um, some people, obviously, noses were put out of joint. Some people were happy to retire based upon that they, they'd done enough for Wales. Um, but I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn in the coaching side of it, the management side of it, and he helped me. So part of my job in that squad in the turnover with Wales and John was to help these young players come through to be ready for international football. I knew they were talented. You know, the work that goes on behind, behind the scenes in international football, people don't get to see. And I said this here to, to Graham Arnold the other day when I spoke to him is, you know, you have to have a plan in place. Oshan Roberts, who now is the technical director of Morocco, um, was a, was the technical director of, of Wales for 10, 12 years. Right? And I've no, I know Osh very well. He was the coach educator of Wales and pro licenses. He was the under-15 coach of the Welsh boys and took them into every milk cup every year. But he was also the technical director. And he had, from top to bottom, 
the run and knew every single player coming through this system. Mm. So he devised his talent ID program. So I knew through Osh that there were talented players coming through, which is why I stayed around Wales. And now you see the benefit of it. I think people just think, well, Wales are lucky because they've got Ryan, uh, they've got Gareth Bale at, at Real Madrid, they've got Aaron Ramsey at Juventus, they've got Harry Wilson at Liverpool, they've got Ethan Ampadu at Chelsea, they've got David Brooks at Bournemouth, they've got all these talented players, uh, and they think it's just luck. No, it's not luck. It's an actual plan in place by the Federation eight years ago that was put in place mm. about pathways for players, profiles of players, pathways for players, development of players, challenging them players, moving them up, moving them down, keeping in contact with them, creating a bigger pool of players for them to come through. And, you know, the Rabi Matondas, Schalke, you know, all of these talented players that come through, I knew about when they were 14 and 15, based upon the technical director. So, Osh has moved on to great things now, and since then, John has moved on. We've had the late Gary Speed, fantastic individual who carried that on. Then we had Chris Coleman, and obviously now we've got... Uh, Ryan Giggs, who's taking them to the Euros as well. So, And the exciting thing for Wales is there's even more youngsters coming through that no yeah. one knows about at the moment that was 16, 17, that generally the hopes are that they might be as good as, if not better, than the cr- crop of players they already have. So, again, it can be done, and Wales are a nation of three, 3 million people. So it's just making sure everyone gets on the same page and has the same beliefs with the same vision. And they're all in it together. It's not people doing their own thing for their own reason, for their own benefit, because it's about players. Yeah. No, that's that's very exciting. I mean, I just wanted to ask you also, um, with the move to, to Toronto FC, I mean, yeah, you, you'd spent, what, more than a decade in, in England. Um, you know, North America, is a, it's a fair move. How did... How did that? Uh, how did that switch? Were you, you know, two thousand seven? Were you looking for something different, or was it a new challenge, or was it sort of? Yeah. I was. I, I got to the stage where I wasn't enjoying my football. Yeah. Uh, and what I mean by that is, I was in. I've been. I was in ten different so locker rooms. All right. And when when you're in England, it's it's a ruthless locker room. It's not easy. All right. So you have to be mentally tough because you've got players that uh, players of think about themselves uh, and. Uh, some players think about the team, but the majority of players think individually, and that's right, and that's their rights because they look after their family. And in England and Europe, you have bonuses for appearances, you have bonuses for wins, you have bonuses for goals. And I'd been in locker rooms that were very successful, and I'd also been in locker rooms that had been relegated. So it's you know you get to know people, and it's a trait that I actually enjoyed. And it's, it's a thing that I believed that I was a good judge of character. So, But I got to the stage at Norwich where we were trying to get promoted and we missed out the, well, the one season and we were languishing the mid-table. And, and there was there was a couple of uh, things that I didn't agree with, um, which I felt were not going the right way. And rather than uh, shout from the rooftops, I went home, I spoke to my family, I spoke to the manager and I said, listen, I've got an opportunity to go to North America. Uh, I'm not enjoying my football because I wasn't. I wanted to play as long as I could. And I just didn't think that if I was going to play for another three, four, five years, I didn't want to listen to this, the moaning, the complaining of yeah. things like that. So uh, I made the decision, you know, n- not emotionally, but I made the decision because I wanted to enjoy myself. I'd, I'd worked so hard to get where I had, and I was only 29. So I went to Toronto. I signed for Toronto literally a week later. I think it was six days later after I'd signed. 
David Beckham signed for LA Galaxy. And suddenly, MLS kicked off. It blew everything into out the water because David Beckham had signed for LA Galaxy. So, mm. you know, my, my right to fame was I was there six, seven days earlier and I didn't know he was going <laughs> to sign. Uh, but it worked in my favour because it put Major League Soccer on the map. And everyone, obviously, because of David, fantastic player, fantastic person, individual, uh, everyone wanted to talk about Major League Soccer. Well, you know, I was in Toronto, and obviously that was the start of my journey in, in Major League Soccer. Yeah, and you, you you were named club MVP for for two seasons. Obviously, you know, a good time there, and then, you know, traded to, to New York for, you know, your final season as a, as a player. Yeah. Nah, Toronto was great. I've still got many good friends at Toronto. Great city, great club. Obviously, the beginning of the franchise, which is never easy. New teams come in, new franchises come in. It's not like that in England, we know, because they've got so much history and tradition. Mm. Toronto was new, so there was a few growing pains, but great group of boys, great people behind the scenes, fantastic ownership. Uh, I went to trade to New York Red Bulls because they had Hans Backer at the time. Uh, ex Sven Groen Eriksson assistant Hans was very very meticulous very talented uh, very tactical and I spent 12 months there I was carrying a knee injury and it was sort of not derailing my career but I was dealing I was playing a game and then I was I would have a I've got a con- I had a chondral defect in my knee so it was swollen for three four days I was getting it drained and I was playing the next Saturday so over a month or so it it become very difficult for me to keep playing and playing and without training. Um, so I had a really good conversation with the manager Hans at the time and said, you know, I've been I've been learning the coaching side of it and Hans was great. He invited me in and I've become one of the player coaches for him, uh, which was exceptional experience. And I learned how to you know how to plan, how to organise things like that. Carried on from what John had taught me. Um, because I knew I wanted to get into it, and I knew that when you get into it, if you're lucky enough to get a chance, then you have to be ready, because some people don't get one chance. If you get a chance, then you've got to make sure you take that chance. So that 12 months was probably as important as any in my career of learning the coaching side of it, because it set me up nicely for, which was my next stop, which was Vancouver, you know, over to the other side of the world, other side of the uh, coast, the West Coast, mm. fantastic place, fantastic city. Uh, but in Canada again, which obviously the family enjoyed Canada. But um, yeah, lots of really good things at, at New York Red Bulls. Yeah, and you had, you know, it was a quick transition to Vancouver, but nearly five years there, and you know a lot of a lot of success in your first coaching. You know, one one more games than you lost, and you know had some some significant achievements, semi-finals. You know, claiming a Canadian yeah. Championship and yeah, semi-final well, yeah, in the Concacaf well, Champions League. Yeah, what what you tend to find is, uh, and you know, I had two years as an assistant, which were really good because the Martin Rennie, Scottish manager, brought me in from you know he'd worked his way up from the USL, which is the league below, to get the job. Um, he needed some MLS experience. I'd been in the league for three, four years. And yep. I went with Martin, so I'm forever grateful for giving me that opportunity. Uh, and then Martin's contract was up and they let Martin go and I ended up being the manager and uh, did I think I was ready? No, probably not and I spoke to a, a few respected managers that you know I spent time with that was Hans Backer, that was Mick McCarthy and they said to me, you are ready Robert, you are ready um, so I knew that uh, and I obviously took the job and you know what, what you tend to find when you're in it is sometimes 
you know, you get caught up in, in, in the moments. You're a manager and it's great and you win your first game and pretty ironic that my first game was against my old, my, my last club, which was New York Red Bulls and we win 4-1 and my, my former teammate, Kenny Miller, who's now my assistant here in Newcastle, scores two goals for me. Um, a new sign-in, a designated player, marquee player, Pedro Morales, scores one day, one goal and creates another goal um, and we beat my old team 4-1 on my debut. You know, it doesn't get, it doesn't, you can't write things better than that. <laughs> and then, you know, from that, from that moment onwards, as I said, I'm very proud to, I was very proud to manage Vancouver Whitecaps because if you look at the four seasons that I was there, we got in the playoffs three years out of four. The year that we didn't get into the playoffs, we qualified for the Champions League and we won the, uh, we won the Canada Cup. You know, we got to the Champions League semi-finals, which has never been done in Vancouver history. You know, I played against Tigres, which was a phenomenal achievement. We managed to win the Canada Cup for the first time. You know, I'd won it twice with Toronto, you know, but Vancouver have never won it. So I won it as a player and a manager, which is a great achievement. And we win, you know, Portland, Seattle and Vancouver. They, they've got a great rivalry and it's a Cascadia Cup involved every four, every every season. So you play them three times each. There's six games involved and we won that two years. So in the four years that I was there... The achievements that I believe that I got were phenomenal. Uh, and based upon, you know, we, everyone knows what we had. And I know what we had. We worked in a salary cap league, you know. But it's the players who deserve the credit. You know, my job is to get the players on the same page, working in the same direction, rowing in the same direction and enjoying their football. And we had some fantastic players. We weren't the most talented group. But I tell you what, we were organised. We were we were driven. We were together. And obviously, to achieve that, um, they deserve a lot of credit. Ah, oh, definitely. Well, that's all the time we have with Carl Robinson. Thank you to Carl for being our guest. Uh, fascinating individual. That's it for episode 99. Thanks for listening. Uh, as always, you can get us on iTunes, Spreaker, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcasts, your favourite podcast provider, I'm pretty sure we're on there. Uh, chuck us a rating, a like, a comment. Uh, if anything you'd like us to talk about or guests you'd like to have uh, for us to have on the podcast, um, we will do our best to accommodate. Um, follow us on Twitter at ByTheBalls2, and we're also on Facebook as well. Thank you and goodbye. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.